Welcome FEI Engage subscribers. My name's Olivia Berkman, and this episode is a conversation with Google VP and Chief Accounting Officer, Amy Teener. Amy shares her path to Google, her time at the FASB, and the lessons she learned along the way. Please enjoy the conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome. My name is Olivia Berkman, and I'm the managing editor of FEI Daily and host of FEI's podcast, Balance Sheet. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Amy Teener, Vice President and Chief Accounting Officer and Other Bets Finance for Alphabet. Amy is responsible for global external reporting and certifying the financial statements. Additionally, Amy leads the finance teams for the non-Google Alphabet companies, where she plays an advisory and governance role, including overseeing annual budgets, managing compensation plans, structuring deals, and performing valuations. Prior to Google, Amy was managing director in PwC's Transaction Services Group, and she was also a practice fellow at the FASB from 2004 to 2006, where she worked on projects such as revenue recognition and fair value measurements. Among many other organizations, Amy is a member of FEI's Committee on Corporate Reporting, where she serves as the FASB Committee Chair, and she also serves as the Co-Chair and Treasurer on the Girls Leadership's Board of Directors, a national organization that equips girls with the skills to exercise the power of their voice. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about them. Before you all meet Amy, I'd just quickly like to highlight that our next speaker in the series will be Cisco SVP and CAO Pratt Bott on June 29th. You can register for that at financialexecutives.org slash events. Okay, so now I'm happy to introduce you all to Amy. Amy, thank you for joining us today. Morning. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we jump in, I'm going to admit that I had to Google what other bets means, and I believe it is an alphabet term, right? So can you just tell us what that means? Sure. So um, when we created the alphabet structure, it uh, was probably 2015. It's hard to remember at this stage. Um, we basically created sort of part of the reason to do it was because we had all of these um projects and things that we were doing in Google that weren't really related to what Google does at its core. So like our self-driving cars, Verily, which is a healthcare company, and they needed to be run separately so they could run faster, not be bogged down by kind of stuff that was happening in Google. So we created this Alphabet holding company and in Alphabet is Google plus these other companies that we call our other bets. So there's them now. Um, and like I said, it's Waymo, it's Verily, it's Sidewalk, it's our two venture funds, um, Google X, which is really our incubator for ideas, um, is in there. And yeah, so it's, it's all the kind of really new stuff, lots of R and D going on in there and companies that are hopefully going to be the next big bet. So that's literally what it means. It's a bet. (laughs) Yeah. That's cool. That's interesting. But also kind of a cute play on words because it's part of alphabet. Ah, gotcha. Okay. Very interesting. So um, I do want to start by asking you about how the last year has been for you um, through the pandemic. How is it? I know that you're a mom. How has the whole experience been for you? And maybe tell us some of the challenges that you came up against. 
Yeah. I mean, listen, this has been a, I think life changing 15 months for everybody. And I think that there's been a lot of different challenges and we're all experiencing it different ways. Right. For me, um, I quarantined with my husband and my three kids and that was a challenge because, you know, we couldn't, we weren't leaving the house. We've never been all together for this period of time before I had kids who were doing school remotely. Um, and you know, kind of at, at ages, I have a kid, I have three kids, 14, 12 and 10, and they were at ages where they need to see their friends and they need to be social and, um, you know, so trying to help them get through that was super tough. At the same time, there's other people who in my family and on my teams who were at home by themselves, which is a totally different kind of challenge. Um, so I think it's been a challenge for everyone. So for me personally, you know, it was really hard to go from kind of the schedule and the routine that we had to we're all locked down. We have a nanny who helps with the kids during the day. Cause both my husband and I work, um, she wasn't coming anymore. So I was trying to hold down a full-time job and manage the house and manage the kids. And I think ultimately we got into a bit of a routine. Um, but I think, you know, even thinking about sort of the mental health of everyone, right? Like I could see how it was stressful for our kids to have, you know, A, it was scary because there was this pandemic going around and nobody knew how it was going to turn out and you were worried that you were going to get sick. Um, and they didn't want to go out and see their friends and then bring it home and get us sick, you know, was one of the things they were afraid of. But then also like just the tax on them of like, you know, not being able to go out and see their friends and play soccer and baseball and all the things that they love that actually burns off energy. Um, my kids are pretty good at school and they're pretty self-starter. So I didn't have a lot of that school work that I think a lot of other people did where they felt like they had to teach their, they had to be teachers as well as hold their jobs down. Um, but I, you know, I think it was, it was hard. And there was a point where I think like I was sort of struggling in terms of like, this just feels like a lot. Um, cause at the same time, right. As in my job, I have to be a leader in my organization as well. And so you have to kind of show up and be a leader and kind of help everybody else through it. And then you're still going through it yourself. If that makes any sense. Um, makes perfect sense. And my husband was sort of like, dude, what's going on? And, you know, and he sort of, realize like, Hey, I need to do more stuff to help out. Like, it's, it's not just, there's more that we all have to do. Um, which was great. So he started taking the kids to the park in the morning, which was good for everyone. Um, we all sort of shared chores. There was like during those first few weeks when nobody was going out, like on Saturdays, we're like, okay, great. We're going to clean the house. Who's doing this and who's doing that. And we would, um, you know, across the five of us, we would share the load, which was kind of nice. Um, there was some good things too. I'm way more connected with my kids than I ever was before. We spent a lot of time together. So I am really grateful that we have had this time. It's been nice, um, but it's not without challenges. And I think the next challenge is going to be, you know, hopefully we're at the end of this, at least in the United States, it seems like we are. I know around the globe, that's not true. Um, but like, how do you capture the good stuff? but then let go of the bad stuff, right? Like I felt like before the pandemic, 
overscheduled, constantly running around, traveling all the time. Like you, you were kind of always in the moment, but never really in the moment because you were always moving around. Um, so the pandemic was nice because we all had the opportunity for me anyway to slow down. And that was just a nice breath of fresh air. Um, and already I can see it. We're like back to back to the fast lane. Um, and so I am trying to figure out a little bit, like how can we capture some of the goodness? Yeah. I'm glad that you said that about your kids because as a support to some people that I know who had older kids, uh, I was always empathizing with them saying, Oh, I, you know, it's gotta be so hard homeschooling your kids and making sure that they're on their laptop when they're supposed to be, or, you know, or even just like you're home and you're working and you have to take your kids to school if they're still in person. But, uh, now that we're coming out of it and I'm having more conversations with those people, I'm finding that the real challenge was supporting their kids, uh, mentally and emotionally, uh, because I think there was a lot of fear and a lot of disconnect. And I think you made a great point too, just burning off that energy, you know, and that's huge. So I, I appreciate you saying that. I'm sure a lot of people listening will, will be able to relate to that. And, I have a question. And, and the other yeah, go thing ahead. Too, right, is it, you know, relates to mental health. It wasn't just the pandemic, right? Like all of the, um, racial equity conversations and the, um, you know, people, you know, walking the streets and things like that. Like, um, we had curfews in like our little town in the Bay area, it's, you know, and my kid, that was their first time they'd ever experienced anything like that. So mm-hmm. having those conversations about why it's important, but also just the, Oh my God, like, why do we have a curfew? What does that mean? Do we have to be in the house? Can we be sitting on our backyard? Like it was, there was a lot of things that happened over the last year. I think that contributed to it, not just the pandemic. And isn't it funny? We're already forgetting some of those things that happened and the feelings that we had at the beginning. I think we're all in a rush to just move on and forget it, but there was a lot of trauma at the beginning. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And I think that we should be really careful not to forget that because it's people are going to be carrying that around and everybody experiences trauma differently. And so just because we're moving out of this doesn't mean the trauma's over. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I do have a question um, because you mentioned that, you know, you're balancing uh, this this home life that presented a lot of challenges and you are also in a in a leadership position. So uh, the question is, how did you start your career and what were the main challenges to reach the top leadership position? So I know that's a big question and, um, you know, (laughs) you can maybe just maybe we could break it down a little bit. So talk to us about the start of your career first. So I um, I'm a native Californian. Um, and really actually, and went to school in, in California cause the UCs are a great, great schools and a great bargain if you're a Californian. Um, and when I started college, the newspaper articles that were going around were about how college grads weren't getting jobs, especially, um, college, like liberal arts college grads who didn't have like non kind of non-practical degrees. And 
my parents, although they deny it now, are pretty clear about like, you're going to college and you're not coming back, like go get a job basically. So I felt the pressure to do something practical where I could get a job. Um, so I majored in business economics with an emphasis in accounting because Santa Barbara was really had a great accounting program. And luckily I really liked it, which was good. Um, so I got a job at the big four right out of college. And I think, you know, a, it was the, what was sort of the opportunity presented. I think it was the normal path. So I didn't think about it a lot. I didn't even know who the big four were, to be honest, when I was interviewing, I just knew that that's who everybody was interviewing with. Um, but in retrospect, it's a phenomenal foundation, right? It's the big four is a great way to see a variety of companies really understand how companies work and how their, um, you know, how financial statements are put together, what the real issues are around them. And they give you like this high level view of what's going on, which is great for, you know, putting you, putting yourself ultimately in a leadership role. It's an awesome career too, um, for those who, who stay to partner. Um, for me, it gave me the opportunity a, to learn a lot and become well-rounded, but then also gave me the opportunity to go to the national office and then to, um, go to the FASB. And those were career defining experiences. Um, so for me, the way I thought about it was first I needed to get a job and then, you know, I kind of just took the opportunities that came along, um, but also sought them out. You know, the story, my story of going to the national office actually started with, I was working in San Francisco. I was an audit, you know, senior man or audit senior and then manager. Um, and I had all my friends were not us, not from the U S they were all expats. And so I started to feel like, why well, I'm like the only one who hasn't left home of all my friends. I need to go do something different for a while. So I went to my, the partner I was working for at the time. And I said, I want to go to Spain. I want to go to Barcelona. I want to work there. You got to transfer me to the, that office. And he was like, um, do you speak Spanish or Portuguese? And I was like, no, but I'll learn it, you know? And he's like, well, I don't even know if we have an office there, but how about you go, if you want to do something new and exciting, like go to New York, you speak the language and you could work in the national office. And so while it wasn't the opportunity I was looking for, it was an awesome opportunity that I then took because he was right. I probably should go somewhere to, you know, a place that speaks my language. Um, and New York is just such an amazing city. Like why not go live there for a while when you have the opportunity? Tell me about the transition from a big four firm to Alphabet, to Google. Um, you know, I think, so first of all, I did a lot of things at PwC, right? I was in audit, national office, FASB, and then transaction services. So I was kind of used to moving around and transitioning between groups, at least. Um, but the biggest differences for me was like, you go from this project-based um customer service oriented company <clears throat> to a company, you know, to an organization that you have to run where you need to think about process. Um, and you're the backbone of a quickly growing business. Like it's, it's sort of, you become the client instead of serving the client. 
And it's a much different perspective and a perspective where um, I felt like I knew a lot when I was at PwC. But when you get into the company and you have to look at it from a totally different angle, and it's not just about what's the technical accounting answer and what's the financial reporting right answer. It's what's operational. What does IR think? What does tax think? What's the PR implications of, you know, what might be the best thing to say? Um, And so I, you know, it's, it's a very different dynamic, but it was really cool and really exciting. Um, I also loved the intellectual challenge of, of PwC, especially in the national office. I love a really good technical accounting uh, debate. Um, so I was a little bit worried that I wouldn't have that when I went to Google, but Google does such interesting, unique transactions that I got more of it almost um, at Google than I ever got at PwC, which I loved. Um, and I got to shift from business casual to casual. So I had to shop for a whole new wardrobe, which was fun. Um, and then the other thing that was, was interesting right when I did the transition was just the difference in the technology. So I went from a company where I had lots of conference calls. In fact, I was probably half the day on conference calls um, to a company where every single meeting room had a huge screen and at the push push of a button, you were in a meeting with some other people who were in different places. You could put the presentation was like right there. And it was like, it wasn't a big, there's only one room where we have a webcam and it's like this big production to set up. Like it was literally at the touch of your finger in every conference room that you went to. Um, They had the collaborative tools so we could all work on a doc at the same time that at the time, like PwC was still using Word and you'd share things around and you had version control. Um, So it was all pretty revolutionary to me. I mean, this was eight and a half years ago, so it doesn't feel so revolutionary now, but it was pretty, pretty early in its days back then. Um, And I think the last thing for me personally is it's been a great opportunity to grow my management and my leadership skills um, in a way that I didn't have the opportunity, at least while I was at the firm, because the firm was really project based. Um, I, the difference for me was when I got to Google and increasingly now I'm in charge of running like a whole organization and I'm, you know, I'm not always the expert in the room. That's not what the job requirement is. It's how do I take the experts and get all the perspectives and help the team make a good decision, right? Whereas the managing director and the partner and the senior manager, see, I felt like your role when you got to the client was like, to be the expert and to provide the advice. It's a very different place um, and job that I have now. Yeah, that's very interesting to think of it in that terms that when you have the, when you're facing the client, you have to be the expert and you are taking what I would think would be sort of a uh, step up when you're going to Google, but suddenly, even though you're in a leadership role, you're not the expert anymore. You're, you're, you know, looking around the room and saying, who knows the answer to this or who's the best person for us to bring in here. So so that's a real shift. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of both, right? You have to have expertise. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are times when I go to meetings where I'm expected to be the expert. Um, but to get that expertise in many cases, I've had to go work with a team of taking kind of what I know, but also, you know, 
mixing it with tax expertise and technical accounting expertise and ops expertise to, to come together with, okay, here's our recommendation of the best path forward. Mm-hmm. Here's a question from um, someone in the audience. I will soon be starting my career in a big four transaction services practice. How did your experience in this specific advisory group prepare you for your role at Alphabet? And I think, you know, Amy, you did touch on this, but maybe what's your advice for this person, you know, while they're at the big firm for like, how do they take full advantage of that, that position that they're, that they'll soon find themselves in? I mean, I think that role, but, but as well at the big four, like the way to take advantage of your experiences early in your career is to ask a lot of questions and to think bigger than your, the, the task at hand, right? So understanding like, why am I doing this reconciliation or why am I writing this memo? Like, where does it fit into the bigger picture and what's the broader company level goal that I'm trying to achieve. Um, and I think the more that you can ask those questions and the more that you can sit in on meetings where there's senior leadership there, the more you can get that big perspective that actually allows you to, to a learn a lot, but, but secondly, like bring a lot of value to your job because it's not just about like, Hey, I have to get this thing done. It's how do I make that thing fit in with the bigger project Um, in a way that we really are headed the right direction. And then, then after, you know, after that, I'd say take every opportunity that comes your way and, you know, and really think about, you know, how do you build a broad tool belt of skills and don't try to dive in and have expertise in one particular thing early, but like, how do you really get a broad set of experiences? That's great advice. Another question. Did you ever find a, I like this one. Do you ever, did you ever find a technical accounting question that you felt really strongly about as an, an auditor, but then you switched your per- perspective in industry, like something like revenue recognition leases? Um, so I worked on the fair value measurement project at the FASB, right? Where we, the the standard, which back then was FAS 157, I can't remember what ASC it is now, um, is all about how to measure fair value. But leading up to that, I worked on financial instruments in the national office and then revenue recognition at the FASB, both of which at the time were fair value models. And I worked on guarantees. And so I'm technically very grounded in like understanding how valuation works and how conceptually it's a really good answer. Um, and I think back when I was at PwC, I thought like, you know, if you can get a valuation expert, you can value anything. And, you know, again, cause conceptually I feel like fair value makes a lot of sense. It's, you know, I was sort of on board with moving this down this fair value path. I think now that I'm at a company where I see the operational challenges of fair value and the volatility that fair value brings to the financials when those measurements aren't really good because there's such a wide range of potential answers. Um, I'm less sure about fair value always being the right answer. I think sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. And I think that even when you use it, you need to explain 
what it is and what it isn't, right? So if I think about one of the more recent rules that the FASB um, implemented around valuing your non-public equity investments and the volatility that that brings to your financials when you have, you're still holding them and you haven't sold them, but the fair value moves are running through your financials. I'm not sure if that's helpful to readers or not. Like, I think the ultimate exit number is the really important number. How much did I earn, you know, gain or lose on this transaction? That's the real realized gain and loss. Like, that's the most important piece of information. Um, I think it's important to know where you're at in the middle, but um, it's it's a lot of noise because it's a lot based on what's going on in the market. Hmm. Interesting. Another question from the audience. We're getting great questions. What career advice would you give for a young professional who does not, is not going to a big four firm is not starting off at a big four, but in the financial space, I assume I would, I would assume. So maybe somebody, maybe there's somebody who you've hired, um, who maybe has taken a different path. I would say, you know, again, I think that no matter where you're at, the goal early on your career should be to get as many experiences under your belt as you can and to, um, you know, really think about your, your broad financial tool belt. Now you might want to have some lens on where you think, what kind of job you think you want to have in five or 10 years. Um, even if you don't know exactly what it is, but sort of the kind of thing you'd like so that you can build the skills that help get you there. But I got to be honest, I had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up, when I was at PwC, um, you know, at the start or at the end, or even now, I mean, I love my job, but I never said to myself in my twenties, I want to be the CAO of some company. Um, so I think some of it is about the way I thought about it is what skills and opportunities are just going to best position me for to open more doors, not less. Right. So every time I was presented with an opportunity, it was like, okay, is this opportunity going to make me, you know, better so that I have more opportunities in front of me or is it going to narrow? And I took the ones that always gave me the springboard to having the next level and the bigger opportunities. I love that. Speaking of opening doors, could you please share your views on how new professional women from finance can take the giant ladder like Google, Amazon, since everything done in finance is through outsourcing question from the audience. Um, hold on. Let me just look at that one again. I just want to make sure I got it. Can you read it one more time? Yeah. I want to make sure that I'm reading it right. Could you please share your views on how new professional women from finance can take the giant ladder like Google, Amazon, since everything done in finance is through outsourcing. So perhaps they mean, yeah, I'm going to guess at what they're getting at, which is, and I can't speak for the other companies, but I can say that at Google, we don't take a lot of entry level finance professionals. We take a few, but we don't take a lot. Um, uh, some other companies do, but a lot of, but, but we definitely don't. Um, and we tend to hire 
kind of the earliest we hire is like someone who's had five to six years experience. So if the question is, well, what should I do if I really want to work at a company like Alphabet or Google or somebody who doesn't hire entry level? Um, the kinds of things that we're looking for is what have you done and how is it related to the role that you're applying for? So just because we don't hire right out of school doesn't mean you can't go to the big four and get a great experience or even to another company and get a really good experience and then apply to a related role at Google when you're five or six years in. Um, I think in some cases we're looking for specific experience and expertise depending on the role. And sometimes we're just looking for a great athlete. Um, so I, you know, I think go out, find other good opportunities for a while, get some experience under your belt and then look for roles where you feel like you'd be a really good fit and go for it and apply and use your network too. Right. So early in your career, no matter where you go, keep in contact with your friends who've gone to other companies and get to know people outside so that when you're ready to take, you know, the jump to your next opportunity, you can not just blindly send in your resume, but also work your network to hopefully find somebody who works there who can help you out. Cause that's, you know, while it's a meritocracy, it's also about, you know, connections and personal, um, personal networks. I think that can be helpful. Mm-hmm. A question, a lot of questions about transitioning out of a big four um, firm, which tells me that a lot of people on a lot of the audience is either at a big four or perhaps starting at a big four. So um, this person wrote, as someone who is starting big four audit this fall, what advice would you give if we want to pivot into a, a role like yours? Is there a minimum years we should stay in a big four? And then I think this is an important question. Do we need a CPA? What's your thought on that? I think most companies will want you to have a CPA. And I I would say if you're at a big four, like you have the perfect platform and ability to get your CPA. So why wouldn't you get your CPA? It can only help you. It will. I don't think I can think of any scenario where having a CPA would be a bad thing. So yes, get your CPA. Um, And I think it helps, it gives you a leg up over other candidates, particularly in an accounting and controllership role. There are some roles where we won't even hire if you don't have a CPA. Um, And then I think, you know, I honestly, I would say if you're at a big four and you're just about to start, it's too early to think about your transition. I think it, you know, you got to dive in first and see what do you like about this job? What do you not like about this job? Um, When we hire it really depends on what role we're hiring as to like what kind of experience we want people to have. It's always great to have big four. Um, cause again, I think it builds a great foundation. I think for some roles it's, you know, coming in earlier or leaving big four and going to a, a, um, an operational role earlier is good because then you've got both the big four plus an operational experience. I think for other roles like technical accounting or SEC reporting, we'll hire a more senior person directly out of the big four. So it kind of depends on what you're looking for, which is why I wouldn't plan it out. I would just, you know, learn as much as you can get some great experiences. And then when the next, you know, when the right external experience for you comes along, um, you're ready for it. And maybe, maybe you won't ever want to leave. Like there's plenty of people who stay at the big four and have super successful careers and it can be a really great place to build a career. So 
I wouldn't take that off the table immediately either. So this person is also uh, starting at a big four and this is the last big four related question (laughs) for today, but um, they're wondering, I guess they're anticipating facing some busy work and they want to know what's your advice for avoiding those types of experiences and getting bogged down in that kind of work. Or you just suck it up. So first of all, I think, I think sometimes you have to suck it up. Um, I think that there, you have to find the value in the busy work, right? And there's two things that I think you can do. One is, again, how does the busy work fit into the bigger picture? So when you have issues with your busy work, you know the questions I should be asking. So you're not blindly just doing the, you know, what's thought of as the busy work. Um, The second thing is there's opportunity in busy work. If it's true busy work, there is automation opportunity. There's opportunity to think about it smarter. And when you can think big like that and bring ideas to the table that make busy work easier, um, make busy work a, a way to get insights faster, like you've, you've A, eliminated busy work for the next person, but also um, brought real value to the table with the work that you're doing. I love that. Let the busy work inspire you. It's a problem to solve. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, this is another question from the audience. Amy, as a, fi- as a female in leadership, have you ever been perceived as aggressive or overly demanding? Oftentimes women are attributed such adjectives while men would respectively be described as decisive and to the point. It's a very interesting question. What do you think? Um, yeah, I think I have. Um, you know, if I think back to kind of my career and who I am, I've never been afraid to go after something that I wanted or to put my hand up and say, I want to do that. Um, and I'm not, as I kind of think back, like, where did that come from? I don't know where it came from. Um, but I grew up thinking if I wanted to do it, I could go out and do it. So, um, you know, I've, I've followed that. I think that sometimes, yeah, that could come off as aggressive. I think, um, you know, I way back in the day when I was at, at PwC and this partner that I was working for had bought a ski house and he was going to have like the seniors and the managers and the insurance team come up. And I like was overhearing this conversation. I'm like, why not everybody? Like, why just, you know, kind of like out there with a, to a partner, I was a brand new associate. Um, but I had no problem going like, hold on, what about the rest of us? Um, and sort of invited myself to the party. And I think that that's kind of how I've always done things. And yes, I think sometimes it's aggressive, but I don't think you get your way um, and you don't get opportunities if you ask for them, if you don't ask for them. You know, I have another story of when um, I was at Google and we had just created the alphabet structure and it was obvious that we needed to like move the controllership to the next level. So um, I went out for dinner and drinks with my CFO at the time or my CFO. And she and I kind of mapped out like, Hey, maybe we need to bring in someone to kind of sit above, you know, sit 
on top of the controllership, like I've been there, done that kind of person and we can build it all out. And I went home and thought about it. I was like, wait a minute, like I kind of want that job. Like, why are we bringing in someone else? So I went back in the next day and I was like, hey, I want that job. You know, I put my big girl pants on and you know, she was great. She was like, well, first of all, thank you for, you know, I'm proud of you for asking, but no. <laughs> and, but like, and that stuck, you know, it sucked that I got the no. Um, but at the end of the day, it was the right answer. It actually accelerated my career because we brought in somebody who was, you know, had done it and had loads of experience for me to learn from really fast and gave me air cover to make mistakes. So it was tough, but I think you have to you have to take the leap. And if that's seen as aggressive, I guess so be it. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit because, uh, I think this is related. I want you to tell the audience about your involvement with the girls leaderships, uh, girls leadership, and you're on the board of directors. What is it about that particular organization's mission that made you want to be so involved? Yeah. So I, um, I have a daughter who's 14 now and I joined the girls leadership board. I guess it's been eight years ago. So she was like six at the time. And my daughter was like many other, you know, four or five, six year old girls. They've got so much energy. They're like so comfortable with who they are. They're like out there, they're putting on like plays for everyone. And like, and I know not all girls were like this, but this was my daughter. And I, I know a lot of girls who are like that. And, um, today the research shows that those girls who had all this confidence when they were young at about fourth, fourth grade, it drops off. And from fourth grade on, you know, anxiety goes up. Depression levels are at record highs for girls. They suddenly go from being out there to like, making themselves small and wanting to please people and like not really sure what they want to wear because they're not sure what other people are wearing and what people are going to say. Um, and girls leadership is trying to, the, the mission really is to help those girls and give them the foundation of social and emotional tools that they need to have the confidence to be who they are and not get bogged down with everything that society's throwing at each other, throwing at them. And the other reason that it was interesting to me is, well, there's a couple things. One is I went to one of the, so, so when I joined the model was these parent daughter workshops or uh, girl influencer kind of girl workshops where I went with my daughter and we did like different exercises to like learn some of these skills. And what was so fascinating was for me and for loads of other moms out there who were there with their daughters, like we learned stuff too. And when I look around the workplace, I see so many women who could have used these skills when they were girls, right? These women who they, you know, you have a big meeting room and there's a big table and they sit in the back. They won't sit, they won't take their spot at the table or they don't speak up in meetings, but they have really good ideas. And they just like, they still don't have their voice. And I think that if, women, if we want women in leadership roles, and if we want women in, um, in STEM and places where there traditionally haven't been women, 
we have to give women the skills to be confident being in those places when they're not always, you know, the majority. And many times they're the only woman in the room. What's been really amazing also about this organization over the last few years is we've made a shift in two ways. One is we're doing less of the sort of daughter, girl, grown up sessions. And we instead are focusing more on like, what can we give the girl influencers? What tools do we need to give to teachers and community-based organizations so that they can take our content and pass it out to the girls because we can hit, we can meet more girls where they are with that model. The second thing that we're doing is we're focusing more on all girls. So what are, what challenges do brown girls have and black girls have? Um, and how are they different than the challenges that white girls have? And what we've learned is that um, through some of our recent research is that the girls, the black and brown girls, they have tons of confidence and they want to be leaders, but then they get put in the system where most of their teachers are white and their influencers are white and they get systematically sort of kind of broken down and not allowed to expand who they are. Um, so we're also trying to help our teachers and our influencers see those dynamics as well. Wow. That's fascinating. I would love to, to dig into some of that research. I bet it's incredible. We can go on our website and see it, but yes, it is really interesting. I will. And probably a little heartbreaking too, but, uh, it sounds like they're doing amazing work. A question, uh, similar from the audience, uh, what role has formal mentorship programs and or executive sponsored had in you achieving your career aspirations and current leadership role at alphabet? Um, I, so I'm a huge believer in mentorship and sponsorship. And for me, it's played an enormous role in, I think, where I've landed from the initial partner that I worked with who sent me to the national office um, to people who were like the opposite of sponsors and me realizing that like, it's actually, I'm not getting to where I want to be because I don't have a sponsor um, <clears throat> to coming to Google. And, you know, after that conversation with my CFO, her bringing in someone whose job in part was to help me and to help develop me. So sort of a more formal, but not formal sponsor um, and, and mentor. So I guess the one thing I would say about that question is it's not the formal mentorship and sponsorship programs that really helped me in my career. And that's not why I'm a huge supporter of them. Um, I actually think it was the informal stuff that worked the best because those are the people I had connections with for some reason, for some reason, you know, this person and I connected, they, you know, took an interest in me and gave me my shot or put me in the room I needed to be in or gave me the opportunities that I needed to have. And those didn't happen through formal sponsorship and mentorship programs. It happened through getting out there, getting to know people and then leveraging those relationships when I had them. Um, but they, I think I've, I've definitely um, seen the difference and experienced the difference between having very strong sponsors and mentors and then been in places where I didn't and seen how you can fall through the cracks a little bit. So um as a leader now, I think part of my job is to do that for other people. And so I do it through formal programs, but I also informally will 
kind of spot the people that I think need it. Um, and also people with really high potential that I want to make sure get to the next place and put my effort and my time into helping those people get to the places that they need to go and want to go. Another question from the audience, what has been your Achilles heel as a leader and what actions have you taken to try to overcome it? So, um, four or five years ago now, I did, um, one of those 360, you know, reviews where you get feedback from Oliver. And it was at the same time as I had performance room, like my annual performance reviews. And it also happened to be the same time that we do our kind of Google wide, we call it Google guys survey, where we ask people lots of questions about their experience working at Google. And in all of this feedback, I overwhelmingly, you know, basically got told that I needed to do a better job listening. And it was super hard because it was hard because I felt like I was getting it from like every direction. Um, And I had to do a lot of introspection on it and really think about what did that mean and have like pretty tough conversations with my team, like to really understand where it was coming from. Because I was, you know, A, it's part of who I am, right? I like to talk. Um, But also I think coming from the firm where you're always the expert in the room, you feel like you need, like that's your value is to have an opinion and have like say it and then like, you know, push on it a little bit. Um, And so it took me a while. It wasn't an overnight thing, but to really sit with the feedback um, and think about what I needed to do differently to be a manager and a leader um, and how I could empower my teams and listen to my teams and, and actually get better outcomes Um, but also understanding that my way wasn't always the best way that actually we got different answers and better answers when I didn't speak up. And when I spent more time saying, tell me more about that, like, help me understand. I'm not really sure I understand where you're coming from. Or, um, when I'd see other people's styles who used to annoy me and then I would look at it and I'd be like, there's something that works for them there. Like maybe I need to figure out what that is and then value it and value the fact that like, they go about it differently, but because they do that, they get to a really good answer. So how can I take, how can I complement that with my style and my thinking? Um, and so I would say that I, you know, because it's not always natural, right? I like, I think I'll always, um, have it as something that I'm working on. I think we're always all working on something. Um, but it's, that was probably one of my biggest leadership challenges is just to, and also to listen for, to understand instead of listening to answer or listening to respond. Oh, that really got me that (laughs) that's me. And there is such a difference between listening to understand and listening to answer. And I'm guilty of Mm -hmm. exactly what it sounds like you are guilty of. Um, and it's something I, I try to work on as well. I also tend to interrupt, which is not a great quality, mm-hmm. especially if you're an interviewer. <laughs> yeah, I, um, uh, I catch it now, but I catch myself um, doing that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We get excited, but yeah. Uh, so a question, another question, uh, that came in earlier, how do you monitor your negative self-talk during stressful times at work or at home? Um, 
I, so I try not to do a lot of it in the first place. So that's maybe why I'm struggling with the answer because Mm I, I think that what I've trained myself to do is sort of talk myself away from that and thinking, okay, X happened. We can't like, let's not relitigate how we got here. We're here. How do we move forward? And so I think a lot of that negative self-talk comes from like, how did I end up here? I'm so stupid that I ended up here. I made the really bad decision. Like, and I, like, I don't think there's a lot of use in that. I think it's better to focus on, okay, I'm here. How do I get out of this? What do I do to move forward out of this? And then that minimizes, I think, some of the negative self-talk and some of the, um, like the doomsday analysis that you can do of like, Oh my God, this is so terrible. Blah, blah, blah. Right. It's like, okay, now we're going to, let's be productive about this. That's not to say by the way, that it's not good to look at back and be like, how did I end up here? But I think you can do that in a more productive way. Right. I think you can do it and say, okay, if this were to happen again, what would I do differently? And, um, what could I learn about how I ended up here so that I don't do that again or that I capture the goodness of the stuff and not do the things that led me to the place that I am now. And some of those things you, you just couldn't know, right? Sometimes you end up in a place you, you think you could have known about it because hindsight's twenty twenty, but in reality, you never could have known that we were going to have a pandemic and all be at home and, you know, need to figure out how we were all going to do this because no one ever saw it coming. And you can later be like, oh, we should have had business continuity planning and we should have planned for this. So you couldn't plan for this scenario. Absolutely. And there's other things I think like that. too. Another question from the audience, what technical skills apart from professional qualification are the core requirements for growth in the finance fields? Technical skills. Hmm. Um, I mean, I think just having a basic understanding of financial concepts. I think if you're in the controllership accounting technical skills, like understanding, you know, again, the basics of accounting and financial reporting and in FP&A, you know, understanding how to do sound financial analysis. Um, I think those are the core skills. And after that, it's really about, you know, fundamental understanding of like, do you understand the business and how it works and what the key challenges are? And are you a good analytical mind? Can you think through a problem? Mm -hmm. This is another great question. How do you make your leader recognize what you bring to the table? Some leaders are more focused on on a few of the team while leaving others behind is the solution to look for another leader. So maybe, maybe there's an instance you can think of where somebody on your team you noticed somebody on, on your team for a particular reason. Uh, cause I hope the solution is not to just look for another leader, but maybe it is. Um, I mean, I think that the, so first of all, I think everyone brings something different to the table. And I think that every leader sees something different in their leadership team. So it's a really hard question to answer like broadly, um, I think the way that leaders get noticed is by delivering, right? 
over under promise and over deliver. I think um, you get noticed when you have really good communication skills and you can communicate clearly, concisely, and um, in a way that's well understood, right? I think sometimes people think that it makes them look smarter if they use a whole bunch of big technical words. And I've always, my experience has been actually, if I can like say what I mean in plain English, more people understand and people really appreciate that. Um, even at very senior levels, right? How do I make it quick, simple, easy to understand and boil it down to the big, to the big issues and not get like hung up on like the little stuff because they don't need to hear that. Um, I think the other thing that's helpful is like, as what I want to hear about on my team is like, I don't necessarily want to hear about how you made all the sausage. I just want to see the sausage at the end. And I want to understand the pros and cons of the ingredients that you put in the sausage, but I don't need to like, I don't need you to give me the blow by blow of how you made it, if that makes sense. So how do yeah, you take it every day and like turn it into something that's, um, digestible, if you will. Well, I think that shows confidence when you can just, uh, present what you accomplished and without getting into the nitty gritties, something my mom always says to me, like, just say less, the less you say the better, you know? And of course that's not always true, but, uh, I think when you can be succinct and to the point, it does show your confidence in, in yourself and the work that you did. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we probably have time for like two more questions. We've gotten a ton, which, uh, and they've all been great. Uh, somebody wants to know what is your leadership style and how do you motivate and inspire your team? So I believe in servant leadership, which is kind of, I'm there to help everybody else. I'm not directive, um, or try not to be directive. I try to be more collaborative and kind of empower my team to come up with the answers and that my role really is to be, how can I help? What information do you need that I can get? How can I connect you to the people you need to be connected to? Um, and if you come across something that you can't handle, like let's talk through it. And if you need to escalate, then let me help you escalate something. Um, and I think that that like, yeah, that works. It works for me. It seems to make my team super productive and, um, and I think, and, and empowered to kind of come to their own answers. And I think we get better answers that way. Um, and I, I also really strongly believe in fostering a environment that feels inclusive where everybody feels like they belong. And that can be really hard to be fair, but um, you know, I try to spend the time to make sure everybody's perspective gets voiced and that we really talk through a lot of, you know, all the different points of view, not just the loudest points of view. Last question. And this is sort of a big question. Technical accounting changes are generally more comfortable for accounting organizations to work through. However, social changes are having more impacts on organizations today. How do accounting organizations have to reframe their perspectives to address the desires of society and not just the shareholder base? So as I said, I know that's a pretty it's big like question. Yeah. It's like an ESG reporting question. I mean, listen, yes. this is a super hot topic. Um, everybody's trying to figure it out. 
I think it is important to, um, to disclose and communicate what you're doing as a company, um, around some of these ESG topics. And I think that shareholders as well as a broad set of stakeholders want to know. And if we want to create change, right, we should have transparent reporting. I don't know where that should be. I don't know how it should be done. I don't think anybody does yet. I think a lot of people have a lot of opinions, Um, but we don't currently have a great framework that serves that broad base of stakeholders. We have a very clear framework to serve investors, but when you want to serve a broader set of um, stakeholders, you know, our investor focused reporting might not be the right place, but I don't know. I think we're still trying to work it out and I think we need to figure it out. Cause I do think it's important for creating change. I think we need transparent disclosure and reporting of what's going on. Definitely. Well, Amy, that was our, that was all we had time for. Unfortunately, there were some questions we did not get to. So thank you audience for all of your, your great questions and Amy, lots of people wanting your, your personal contact information. So <laughs> there might be some requests coming your way. But yeah, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. So you could always start there. Um, if, okay. if my contact information is in that FBI. Great. Well, thank you, Amy, Thanks so for much me. for your time. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.